0: We are going to read our Bible, uh, which we believe here at City Light is God's Word, and it is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 to 21. So as I said at the start, this is written by Paul, who we have been reading about in Acts as he writes to the church at Ephesus, and it says...
1: Alright, well good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy, I'm the lead pastor here and um, thank you for spending your Father's Day morning with us at church. It's going to be great to dive into God's Word and into the book of Ephesians as, um, as curly read out just before. But before we open God's Word, I'm going to pray for our hearts and minds that we'd be focused in hearing what God has to say to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we just praise you that you are a Heavenly Father. Now you have not left us guessing as to what you are like, but you have revealed yourself in your word and through the gospel. You are a God who is a Father who loves and who sent Christ as a sacrifice for our sin, that we might know the depths of your love toward us through him. And so, Father, we pray that this morning that you would blow us away with a vision of how much you have loved us in Christ, that it might move us to lead lives of love like you and serve those around us. And we pray all of this for the glory of your name. Amen. I reckon one of the great things about parenting is that it brings the two halves of humanity together and brings their unique giftings and inclinations into family life. And one of the things that dads often bring is a real competitive energy. If you've ever been at a kid's park and there's a flying fox there, and some of you are already laughing because you know what's about to happen, when you see a kid streaking past you at a speed that makes you think they're about to go into the future, you can be sure that you look down the line and you'll see a chuffed dad, hands on hips, just admiring his handiwork after seeing his kid as hard and fast as they could, full send to the end of the flying fox. Or if you've seen like a, um, a kid on a swing who gets so high that the chains kind of go lax and they enter free fall for a moment, you can be sure that, again, there's a dad on the other end just seeing how far he can actually push them. And I reckon most dads, even if they've said to themselves, look, I would never do it, they've at least thought in their mind like, I wouldn't do it, but I probably could send my kid full 360 if I wanted to on the swing. I'd never try it be like I reckon I reckon if I put my mind to it I could do it. I remember vividly having one of these moments with our kids when with our eldest he um, we're at we're kind of at the shops and a dog had come past that had given him a fright. And so to distract him I did that thing that dads do, which is to grab your kid and throw him in the air. And they love it. They love like seeing how high they can go and getting caught again. And so I threw him up in the air. What I didn't realize was we were standing under an awning. And so he bumped his head. No, but just let me finish because you're going to miss the main point of the story. I threw him up and he bumped his head, yes, not great. But I caught him on the way down. And if you know anything about catching, it's really hard to take a catch when it's taken a deflection. But I caught him clean. And so the main thing is, wow, how good am I that I threw him up and caught him in in that situation. But no, the, the presiding feeling afterwards was definitely fear and regret. But it's interesting that there is a unique goodness that dads and mums bring with their different parenting styles, different disciplinary styles, and that's why we celebrate Father's Day. But the most profound thing that a day can bring to a family is, of course, love. And what Paul's writing in this letter to the Ephesians, the one thing that he wants them to know, the one thing that will transform their lives individually and as a whole church, is to know that God is a father who loves. And so not just know that kind of in theory or as an intellectual concept, but to know the depth and the height and the length of that love, to know the dimensions of that love. So we're going to get into this letter today that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. And if you've been with us over the the last few weeks, you've been tracking along with the story in the book of Acts, the story of the early church, how the gospel went out from this town in Jerusalem and and spread out to Judea and to the ends of the earth. And, uh, And last week, Paul, who was a guy who persecuted Christians, hated Christianity and the message about Jesus, and then himself actually became a Christian and was so compelled and transformed by the message that he gave his life away telling other people about this love of God. And he goes around all of the ancient world and he goes to an area which would be today modern-day Turkey, and it's a place called Ephesus, and he goes there and for two years he tells everyone about Jesus and about the love of God to the point that it says that almost everyone in Asia, which is Asia Minor at that time, so again Turkey, knew about this message of Jesus and things it transformed the city to such a degree that it actually changed the economic landscape of the city. If you know anything about ancient Ephesus you'll know that it had something called the temple of Artemis which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So you can think of this as like the opera house people would come just to see this thing and so people would come to Ephesus just to see this temple and to visit it And so there was a huge industry built around making these little statues to the goddess Artemis, and there was a whole trade and a whole economics that came with this city. But the gospel so gripped people's hearts that they actually were leaving behind this belief in Artemis and in sorcery and all this kind of stuff, such to the point that those who produced those things were losing money, and it caused a riot in the city. And so Paul... Ten years after that event, and ten years after the church had started in Ephesus, he writes a letter back to them. And he wants them to know something. And you can think about that from, like, kind of our history. We are a church that's about ten years old. So they're about the same age as us when they get this letter from Paul, this letter called The, the Letter to the Ephesians. And here, he wants them to see one thing, he wants them to understand one thing. It's that God loves them. And he wants them to grasp that. He wants it to grasp their hearts in such a way that it transforms their lives and the life of the church. And so it starts here in Ephesians three fourteen, where Paul says this. He says, "For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father." So Paul says he bows his knees, which is just an ancient term for prayer. That often that was the posture that someone would take when they're praying. And it's interesting because your prayer life whether or not you'd consider yourself someone very spiritual or not, reveals a lot about what you think about life, and in particular about God. And here we see that Paul says, I, I bow my knees before the Father. There is a, a reverence to God, but also a closeness that comes with knowing God. The God We see that God is both powerful and personal. We see these twin attributes are, are captured in that one term, Father. That God is both almighty, that he is the creator of heaven and earth, that he is the author of life, that also he's as close as a father. And see, many people, I think, tend to relate to God as either one or the other. They'll either see God as just powerful. That is a distant, powerful, impersonal force. Maybe a force in the universe or the cosmos or whatever it is, but really a force that doesn't get involved in everyday life. That basically we're on our own and for 99.9% of life, I've mostly got things under control, but God or that spiritual being or whatever is out there is just there for that 0.1% when things really get out of hand. And I think before I came to know God as Father, that's how I related to God. God was kind of like emergency services. You don't call them just to to speak about how your day has been or anything like that. You call them only when things are, are absolutely out of control. And that's even the case, I think, for many Australians. A spiritual survey done during the COVID years indicated that even for people who didn't identify with a particular faith, didn't attend a religious service or anything like that, that that, uh, people across the board were praying more. And the reason for it most likely is because it's the most out of control that things have felt. And in that moment, people were grasping for like, is is there someone or something that can help me in this circumstance? But I also imagine, and I haven't seen any follow-up research, but I also imagine that after that period, it probably dipped down again. That as life goes back to normal, and we feel like, oh, I've kind of mostly got things under control. We're like, look, I don't really see a need for God in my everyday life. God is powerful, and so I call on Him when I need stuff or when things are really out of control, but He's not really personal. But it can go the other way that some people see God as just personal. That is kind of like He's like a, a therapist in the sky. You go to Him for maybe some advice, but it's, it's not advice that you really have to take or implement. You can chat about your life, and you don't really need to take an interest in them either. You don't go to a therapist to find out about their life. You're there to talk about yourself. And I think if you were to do a dive into many people's prayer lives, it might show that they believe that God is personal but not powerful. That is, most of the prayers are kind of like a dear diary type energy where you're just talking about yourself and your life, and hopefully maybe God will throw some insight in here or there, and you can sort of take it or leave it. But not an authority figure. Or maybe you're kind of like a father figure, like a cool dad who like, doesn't really tell you what to do, but is just kind of there and gives you stuff. Now, God is a father, and it carries that those twin attributes of authority, power, but also personalness and closeness. Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father. And then he goes on to explain what this means for all humankind. Look what he says in, 13, in, in 14 and 15. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul says he prays to the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth has been named. What does that mean? Well, Paul grew up in a culture where you didn't necessarily have a surname. You were often known as the son of your father. So I would be Jeremy, Stephen's son. And some of you may have a surname that's like that, that has son on the end, which is kind of like a similar sort of uh, vibe. But in his culture, the way you would identify yourself is as, I'm this person, son of so-and-so. And it was to establish that there was a connection to your father. This is the family that I come from. This is who my dad is. And so when Paul says that every family is named from this heavenly father, what he means is that God is father of all, creator of all, that he is the one who made us, and that we were made to be in relationship, a personal relationship with this heavenly father. That all people and all things even belong to God and are for God, and that the thing we're missing in life is a relationship with our heavenly father I don't know if you saw the uh, the Pixar movie onward um, but it was like, it came out a number of years ago right? and it was the story of kind of a, a family that live in a world where people used to believe in magic they used to be you know that kind of thing around but it sort of died out and in the story it starts with two brothers who've lost their father and I, Our kids have have got to the point where they kind of roll their eyes when that's a Disney plot because it's like it's always an orphan. It's always like they always have to go on about that sort of thing. But anyway, in this one, it, it focuses on these two brothers who aren't necessarily that close. But what unites them is that they find out that there might be a way to kind of bring up this old magic that would mean that they could meet their father even just briefly for just one more time. And so they go on this epic adventure together. They find out all this stuff about themselves and each other. But they go through all of this because they want to get a glimpse of their dad, even just for a moment, to see, do I look like him? Does meeting him explain some of the things that I know about myself? Is, am I into these sort of things because my dad is into these sort of things? And so this, the, the whole journey is driven by this desire to meet him. And Paul is saying in the same way that all people were made to know their heavenly father, that we are not a cosmic accident. That humankind is not the result of blind evolutionary forces that have just kind of incidentally or accidentally wound us up where we are now. And that all of the things that we feel are just kind of an abstraction of old evolutionary impulses. That we're made by a personal good God who knows us personally and wants to be in relationship with us personally. That we're irreversibly connected to Him. That we resemble His very nature That's what the Bible teaches by saying that humankind has been made in the image of God. That we resemble him. And it's why in the 4th century, Augustine wrote that our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. See, Paul is saying that all families everywhere are made by and for God. And that's why there is a restlessness in life until we find and are restored to relationship with him. That's why athletes often describe the incredible come down after having achieved the thing that they thought would bring life its most meaning. When they get the win or the trophy or the gold medal or the award, and then afterwards life feels somehow kind of empty or almost worse because now it's like I got the thing that I wanted and now it feels like I don't know what to do. Or maybe I have to do it again, but this time there's more pressure. That's why oftentimes when people get the things they were looking for in life, the relationship the house, the career, whatever else it is, afterwards, they feel kind of a little bit just lost. Because we're made for one thing, one all-satisfying relationship with our Heavenly Father that makes sense of all the other things that we want in life. This is why Paul says every family derives its name from God the Father. It means that all people belong to Him. And until that relationship is stored, it will always feel like there is something missing, something that should be there that isn't in life. And so Paul prays that not only that people would know this Father, but that they would know that this Heavenly Father loves them and loves them immensely. Look how he writes it in in, uh, 16 and beyond. It says that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being established and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him he was able to do far more abundantly than we think or ask, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul prays, that we may be strengthened by His Spirit, that we may comprehend the breadth and height, not height, but height and length and depth of His love for us in Christ. Because His worry is that we may miss it, that when you hear God loves you, it may just wash over you and you may not take on the full dimension of what that means, that we might miss the miracle. Do you know what I think is one of the most extraordinary things about adoptive parents is the lengths that they go to in order to save and serve another child. There's the financial sacrifice that's made, of course, but they also have to subject themselves to a process in order to even be able or eligible to take on these lives and to love them. And if they're adopting children from overseas or ones who have a disability, the the bar is even higher again. They're taking on children usually who have some kind of traumatic background and they're willing to do all of this to love these kids. And the crazy thing is that these kids wouldn't even know the lengths that they've gone to to do this. They don't even know the lengths their adoptive parents have done to do this. And Paul says here, I don't want you to miss the lengths that God had to go to in order to love you. What he had to overcome in order to love you. That he had to send his own son to die in your place on the cross. That your sin might be washed away. That the barrier that kept you and God from relationship could be taken away so that there could be a restored relationship between you and him. That we who'd walked away would actually be able to find and know him. And Paul says, I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss the height, the depth, the enormity of this love that was poured out for you. And more than that, he says, actually, you actually need his spirit to work in you so that you won't miss it so that you will see just how enormous it is, so that it won't just be a mere intellectual assent to the idea that God loves you or a concept that there is a God who is a spiritual force who is kind of positively inclined towards you, but that you would know the depths of this love and know it personally. Because more than that, it's not just love as we understand it, it's love that's sacrificed in order to love. And there is a unique quality to sacrificial love, isn't there? Let me explain it in this way. In 2017, so Alessia Zacchini, if I'm getting the pronunciation right, who is, I think, currently the, the women's free dive champion, attempted to do something called the Blue Hole Dive. Now, to give you some background about what free diving is, it's absolutely terrifying. Imagine diving, but without oxygen. That's freediving for you. Basically, the idea is to try and go as deep vertically as you possibly can in a single breath. And the way these competitions work is that there will be a plumb line that goes straight down that they're kind of loosely attached to so they don't get disoriented and, and lost. But basically, they'll, they'll hit depths of further than 100 meters down. And don't forget, every meter you go down, you have to come back up. And so they'll go down on a single breath. And when you get to the bottom, at like 100 or so meters, There's no one there to help you. So if something goes wrong down there, there's no one that can help you. And the reason for that is that people can't assist you with a breathing apparatus because they can't take you to the surface. They can't go up that quickly while they have oxygen coming into their lungs. Otherwise, they themselves will, I don't know what it is, you get like bubbles in your blood or something horrific and terrible. So the safety divers themselves have to be free divers. Now, of course, they can't make the full depth. So they'll meet you at about 30 meters deep and then kind of escort you to the top of the surface because that's where things tend to are most likely to go wrong in the last sort of 10 to 20 meters. And so that's how freediving works. But Alessia Zucchini wanted to do a dive called the Blue Hole, which is a place, in e- a reef in Egypt that is the most perilous freediving spot in the world. And the reason it's called the Blue Hole is there's a reef and it's got a blue hole in it that goes down, we're not quite sure how deep it goes, but about 50 meters down, there is a gap or an archway under the reef, which means you can go 50 meters down, then 30 meters across, and then 50 meters back up. And that's how you complete the, the blue hole dive. And even as I'm saying it, I can feel the, the stress levels in the room <laughs> climbing. And Alessia wanted to do this with her partner, who was a safety diver, whose name was Stephen Keenan. And so the way it was to work was that she would dive down on one side she would come through the archway, and on the other side, he would descend and meet her so that she could find the plumb line to then go up and to surface safely. And as she completed the first part and the archway, things were going reasonably well. But on the other side, they'd slightly mistimed their meet-up, and he arrived slightly too late to the archway. And when she got there, she couldn't find the line and became disoriented. And so instead of finding him, she decided to follow the reef back up to the surface. And he, as he was diving, saw that she was disoriented and swimming the wrong way and went after her. But because he'd taken extra time to go after her and to bring her to the surface, both she and him were running out of oxygen. And he took her to the surface and saved her life, but he himself didn't make it. With his final breath, he took her to the surface and gave her life and lost his. And as all the other divers reflect on this and on his life, No one can help but regard the incredible sacrifice that he made for her. There is something unique about love that would sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. You would give up even your own life to save another. Paul says, I don't want you to miss how much God has loved you. That Christ would have to die as a sacrifice in your place. That when he gave up his last breath, it was not for people who loved him like it was in that story... But even for his enemies, that there is a love that sacrifices. This is the kind of love with which the Father loves you. Paul says, if you don't get this, you'll miss everything about the Christian life. Unless you understand and grasp how deep this love is for you in Christ Jesus, you'll miss everything about the Christian life. You won't get why it is that God commands you to do some things and not others. It will feel like it's just rules and duty. You'll think it's just the Christian life is about duty more than joy, that it's just an obligation that has to be fulfilled or a debt that has to be paid off. You'll miss the point of sharing the gospel with others and feel like it's just another thing that I've got to do rather than this is a love that I want to introduce the world to. Paul says if you don't get God as your heavenly father and you don't get the love that he has for you in Christ, you'll miss the whole thing. The late J.I. Packer, a theologian, Put it in this way. He said, You sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. This is the single point that Paul is making in Ephesians 3. Grasp this. God loves you. He is your heavenly Father. You are made for a relationship with Him and He has done everything necessary to bring you back in a relationship with Him. He loves you with an everlasting love. And isn't this ultimately what everyone is looking for? A love like that. A love that makes life meaningful and gives purpose that explains what we are here for. A love that is full and complete and can redeem and save a life. See, many of us here are walking wounded from relationships. And maybe it's from your parents or a spouse or ex-spouse or partner or whoever. And knowing the love of God is the only love that I know of that can heal some of these wounds. To know that while earthly relationships may have let us down, we may have let others down, But there is a perfect love in the universe that can be known and is free to anyone. That anyone who has faith in Christ can know this love for them. There is a love that forgives and overthrows death and sin and shame. This is the one thing that Paul wants the Ephesian church to know. Ten years after that whole situation where the gospel disrupted an entire city, Paul writes back to them and he says, I just want you to get one thing. This is the bedrock for your whole church. This is what your lives are to be founded on, is to know and understand the love of the Father through Christ Jesus. And so the question for you today is, do you know this love? Do you know this love from the Father? Because the way that you get it is clear. Paul says here it's through faith in Christ that it's knowing who Jesus is. Trusting that he actually died for your sin to bring you back to God is how you know and are brought into relationship with God and how you experience this love forever. So maybe it's the case that you've gotten the impression from religion or from Christianity or whatever that it's largely about stuff that you have to do. That it's largely about obligations that you have to fill or a checklist of things that you have to do in order to win the approval of God. We can see right here in the letter to the Ephesians, it's one central thing. It's grasping... How wide and deep and the length of God's love for you in Christ. It's understanding the love of God towards you. To to know God is not to come home to like a disappointed parent. Oftentimes I think people feel like it's a bit like if you're like a naughty teenager who like your parents had grounded you and you kind of escaped out of your house and snuck out the window. And I'm I'm just theorizing here. I don't know why I'm putting so many details around it. But you imagine that That uh, once you're out, you realize that when you get home, the only thing waiting for you is trouble. And so you put off for as long as possible going home, anticipating that when you get home, there's going to be disappointment. That's going to be the main sort of thing that you'll be faced with when you get there. And so oftentimes I think people feel like that. Even if they have a sense that God might be real, it's the sense of like, man, I bet it's going to be like I've done all this stuff and when I finally come home to know him, it's going to be like he just can't wait. He's going to have all of these IOUs that he's going to cash in and he's going to be like, remember the time when you and so on and so forth and that will be the nature of your relationship with God forever. But that runs completely counter to what we see in Scripture. But Paul says here, no, the thing that you ought to know, what defines being a child of God is knowing God as a father and knowing that he loves you. And so if this is something you've never explored, we would love to help you with that. And if there is something this morning where you thought, I, I do actually want to know more about this, we want to know and we want to be able to help you. And later on, there will be some white cards ar- around that you can let us know if you want to know a bit more information. But this is a, life, a love that changes lives. It's worth investigating. And if you are here and you are a follower of Christ... And you've been following God for many years. Can I tell you that the one danger that Paul is pointing out in your life is that you may become too familiar with the love of God. You've heard the phrase familiarity breeds contempt. The idea that the longer you have something around, even if it's an incredible grace or privilege, is that you tend to get used to it. It's kind of one of the unfortunate things about human nature that even when we have things that are incredible gifts, the longer we have them, the less they feel like incredible gifts. And it can be the case that over time, as a Christian, you can hear so many times, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. That's it's kind of like, yeah, it's, like, it's almost his job to do that. It's not that extraordinary. That's why he exists and what he does it for. And so I want to encourage you to afresh, just look at the love that God has for you this morning and to consider it and to give it the best of your mind's attention. To consider the depths of the love for, Christ, for God In Christ to you. See, there are a number of symptoms I think that can show to us that maybe we've become a little bit familiar with God's love toward us. I don't know if you've noticed any of these things in your life. When following Jesus becomes more about duty than joy. Like there was a time when I was young when it was really about joy and there was an excitement to my Christian life, but now it's kind of become, in some ways, a set of habits or disciplines. A loss of passion in singing of the glories of Christ and of his grace and mercy toward us. A sense a sense that God is just disappointed. A sense that he's in heaven. He's like, he, yes, he loves me. I've, I get that. I hear that. But I look at all the stuff that I'm doing, and I was like, he probably just looks at me and thinks like, I love you, but you could be doing a lot more for me. It could be a lack of desire for holiness, a lack of passion to grow in Christ-likeness, an apprehension to share the gospel a dryness in reading the Bible, that reading the Bible is just about stories, information, facts, or even just getting it done, rather than every morning thinking, how can I comprehend the height, length, depth, breadth of God's love for me? How does Scripture reveal, how does every jot of Scripture reveal the love of God? Or maybe just a routine, passionless kind of prayer life, one where you find yourself repeating or rehearsing the same old prayers again and again, but with less and less interest. If this is the case, maybe just heed Paul's word this morning to comprehend how wide and deep his love is for you and to know that his spirit is at work in you for this very end, that this is a knowledge that you can't attain to just by thinking about it intellectually, that this is spirit-given knowledge, that it's the spirit that empowers us to see it not just as words on a page but as life-transforming reality and truth. May we all, together with all the saints, comprehend how wide, how deep, how high is the love of God. And may we do this, that he might be glorified in our lives together. Let's pray. Father, we so often are guilty of forgetting just how much you love us in Jesus. Do we forget the enormity of this love and the quality and intensity of it? that you who were willing to give up his own son loved those who didn't love you back. So, Father, we just pray that this morning, that by your Spirit, you would be giving us strength to comprehend this reality, and that it would move us, and not just for a morning, but for our whole lives. That as we sing, as we pray, as we study your word, that we would see how good you are and how perfect your love is in Christ. And Father, we pray that this would strengthen us to serve and to love like Christ and to do all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.